one if you're interested in, you know, 31 little back slaps, you know, to, <clears throat> and one to grow on. <clears throat> when I was a kid in elementary school, our teacher used to make us come up in front and lean over her lap, and she would spank us with a paddle on our birthdays. <clears throat> you know, lightly, it was all in good fun. But now that I think about it, it's really kind of a weird thing to do. I don't think people should do that stuff anymore. You know, if you're a teacher, maybe that's not a good idea. Um, my name is John Huggins. I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning, this weekend after Thanksgiving. <clears throat> I'm going to be talking about uh, sharing some thoughts on the incarnation because we are about to get into the Advent season that begins next Sunday. Advent is the four Sundays um, just before Christmas. And the Advent themes are hope, peace, joy, and love. And we will be lighting candles probably for each one of those weeks and each one of those themes. The idea being that we were anticipating the arrival, the coming of Jesus to bring true hope, peace, joy, and love into the world. So to get us ready for Advent season, I thought I'd reflect some on the incarnation. Uh, I want to talk about it as both divine presence and human redemption. By incarnation, I'm talking about Jesus coming as God in the flesh. It's divine presence and human redemption, both of these things. Now, if the sermon gets a little boring for you in places, there's a bed right here for anybody who needs. Although I will tell you, it's just plywood. It wouldn't be very comfortable. It's got to be hard to listen to a sermon and look at a bed at the same time. You know, I start drooping, but I'll do my best. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, please open our eyes to the beauty of Christ, that our hearts may be happy and alive in him. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So I'd like to begin uh, with two quotations. The first one comes from C.S. Lewis. It's from his most philosophical work called Miracles, where he talks about the incarnation. And he says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It's important. Just as every natural event is the manifestation of a, at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and significance of the incarnation. I chose this, this uh, quotation from Lewis initially because it helps us see some of the importance of the incarnation, that maybe it means more than we have even considered Now, Eastern Christians tend to uh, emphasize the incarnation as a part of the redemption story a little more than Western Christians have historically. And so I want us to feel some of the importance of the incarnation. Jesus coming as flesh, as a child, as a baby, and living a full human life. What's the significance of that? Second quotation is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his famous work, The Cost of Discipleship. He says... In the incarnation, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Henceforth, any attack, even on the least of men, is an attack on Christ, who took the form of man and in his own person restored the image of God in all that bears a human form. 
Through fellowship and communion with the incarnate Lord, we recover our true humanity. Now, that last line, that speaks to one of the themes that I'm going to address later, the recovery of our true humanity. All right. So I want to sit... I want to situate the incarnation within the larger biblical theme of God's presence with His people. And I want you to see that it's actually a very serious biblical and theological theme, that God's plan, God's purpose is to be with humanity, and that this theme goes from beginning to end in the Bible. And so, on the next slide, I'll kind of show you, just in brief, you can see very vivid images of God's presence with His people during these moments throughout the biblical story. If you leave that up there for just a moment, I'll kind of talk through it uh, in brief. So, in the creation story, we see a picture of God creating what he calls an exceedingly good world. And it's a cosmos characterized by God and creation in communion together. So, in Eden, Eden is sort of like a garden temple where God is with people. He's with Adam and Eve, who are said to be his image bearers. And the way I understand this notion of being in the image of God is that it's a relational slash representational calling. What I mean by that is that humans were called and created to relate to God, a relational aspect, and to reflect God into the world. Humans were uniquely equipped among all the creatures of creation to relate to God and reflect Him into the world. So they have communion with God in the Garden of Eden. But as you know, through humanity's sin and rebellion, they are exiled from the Garden. And that sense of God's closeness and God's presence is taken away. In the book of Exodus, we see God coming to be present with His people as He leads them out of slavery in Egypt, across the sea, and God's presence is manifested as fire and cloud. And the fire and cloud theme will come back up and be associated with God's presence throughout the rest of the biblical story. In the wilderness, they're given instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a very holy and special place because it will be where the people of Israel can meet with God, where they can commune with Him, where they can relate to God. It's a very holy and special place. We know this when the cloud of God's presence comes to fill this tabernacle and overwhelms those around it. And the cloud of fire is there by night, the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. It's also a very serious, even dangerous thing to have God's presence there with them. But it's like getting a piece of Eden back. As the story progresses, eventually they're able to build, the Israelites are able to build a a permanent temple in Jerusalem under King Solomon. And there, just like in the wilderness tabernacle, God's presence comes to fill the place, overwhelming those who are there. And you have cloud and fire associated with God's presence in the temple as well. Now, this temple is uh, destroyed around 586 by the Babylonians, and the kingdom of Judah is taken into exile. When they're taken into exile, one of the prophets during the time, Ezekiel, describes this vivid image, this vision he has of divine presence leaving the temple, leaving God's people due to their idolatry and its related transgressions. But there's also the promise of God's presence returning, and so there's hope even in exile. They are allowed to return 
to Jerusalem at one point, and they rebuild the temple. This is sometimes called the second temple. It's rebuilt around the year 515 or so. But you don't have one of those instances where God's Spirit, where the cloud and fire come and fill the temple again like it did before. And so there's a sense of hope, anticipation. When will God come back to be with us in this manifest, powerful way? And it really doesn't happen again until the Christ event. When Jesus himself, shortly after his birth, is brought to the temple in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden there's people prophesying in the power of the Spirit, namely Simeon and Anna, telling great things about this child. You know something special is happening. And in Jesus, the Bible affirms, God comes to be present with his people, to live with us, among us, even as one of us. The incarnation is a big deal. And I'm going to come back to emphasizing it in just a moment. One of the things about Christ in relationship to the previous parts of the story is the tabernacle and the temple have been seen as places where heaven and earth come together. That is, places where humans could be in God's presence through a representative, namely the high priest, where humans could find forgiveness and redemption, where humans could hear from God. And now Jesus Christ comes And he is all of those things. He is where you would want to go to be in God's presence. He is where you would find forgiveness and redemption. If you want to hear from God, we must go to Jesus. Now, of course, then we move to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, after which he sends the Holy Spirit upon the church. This is the story in Acts chapter 2, what we call the day of Pentecost, when all of a sudden tongues of, what is it? Fire, come and descend upon God's people gathered there in Jerusalem. God's empowering presence is with them as this new and living temple that can go anywhere and be manifest throughout the earth. The temple, the presence of God goes with us to our homes, to our workplaces, to the park, and even to places like this when we gather for worship. So the Bible affirms that God is present with us through the Holy Spirit and then gives us the hope of the new creation. In the new creation, you see uh, an explanation or kind of a, a picture of this new creation in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And the new creation is characterized. What makes it special is that God's presence is with his people. That passage is worth reflecting on over and over again. Revelation 21 1 through 5. Heaven and earth are brought together as a redeemed cosmos, and the world is saturated with God's presence. The knowledge of God covers the earth like water covers the sea, the scripture says. And so we see in these instances that God's own presence with his people is a serious, true, and biblical theme. And we can draw encouragement from that. It's not just something we're making up, hoping for, pretending are basing on some obscure passage in Scripture. In fact, it's God's presence that makes all the other parts so great. God's presence is what makes creation and Eden great. It's what makes the story of Israel great. It's what makes Jesus great, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. It's what's so great about the church, that God's presence is with us. And it's what will be so great about our future hope, It's not just simply that, you know, 
we can eat Chick-fil-A all the time, even on Sundays, you know, in the new creation, you know, it's, or that, you know, you can go play golf or whatever, or that the Falcons win the Super Bowl in the new creation, you know, who knows, it's that God's presence is with us. That's what's great about the coming age. <clears throat> so now let's backtrack to the, <clears throat> to Jesus, the incarnation. The Bible affirms in many places, Jesus' divine identity. You see it in passages like John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 14. Let's pull that up. Uh, the Gospel of John begins, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, you cannot get more exalted language about Jesus than this. He's the Word in the beginning with God who becomes flesh and dwells among us. Other passages include Colossians 1.15, where the text proclaims that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. For in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, quite exalted language. Philippians chapter 2 is this famous hymn to Christ that speaks of him in his exalted pre-incarnate form, becoming human for us, being obedient unto death, and then being raised back to the place where his name is above all names. So the text says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, a thing to hold on to or to use or exploit. But instead, he empties himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage is also a clear echo of a passage in Isaiah where the same things are said about God himself. That every knee would bow and every tongue confess him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I just wanted you to see it from the New Testament where people are proclaiming Jesus' divine identity but also recognizing his humanity. In 2 Corinthians 4, the passage tells us that, I want to skip to the, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, it says Christ, who is the image of God. That's interesting. So Christ is the image of God. But that notion, the image of God, is actually something said about humans, right, in the creation story. He's saying he's the true human. And then... What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness in the creation story, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So we've seen this in this one passage, there's like Jesus is the true human, but you also only get the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. That's how we come to know God and ourselves. That's actually one of the points I want to emphasize. We see Jesus being presented and proclaimed not only as God's presence with us. You think back to Matthew chapter 1. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. But we also see him presented as someone we are supposed to become conformed to. 
So in Romans chapter 8, it says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that God desires all believers to become like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the incarnation is this big deal. As I said before, the Eastern church has often done a better job of recognizing this as an important salvific moment in the story of redemption. It's seen as the beginning of human redemption. It's not just the cross and resurrection that are important, but also the incarnation. And the incarnation is not just an unfortunate prelude to his death. You know, well, he had to you know, do all these things and be helpless and be subject to humanity's efforts to care for him. Rather, it was important that Jesus live a whole human life. Some of the early church fathers reflecting on this said things like, his first quote is by Gregory of Nazianzus, who was one of the Eastern Greek-speaking church fathers. He wrote, what has not been assumed has not been healed. What he was doing is he was arguing that Jesus had to assume a fully human life, a fully human identity in order to heal every aspect of our humanity. And again, Athanasius wrote in his book, On the Incarnation, Jesus became what we are, that he might make us what he is. That is to say, Jesus became what we are and bears our sin so that he can make us what he is. What is he? Is he make, to make us divine? No, but to make us fully alive human beings in the image of God. It's one of the things about Jesus' humanity uh, that Christians have wrestled with before. Was Jesus really fully human if he has a divine identity? And the answer to that is actually Jesus was more human than any of us because Jesus was an unfallen, was not fallen, was not corrupted by sin. He knew a fully alive humanity unlike anything we have yet tasted. And he comes assuming all of that to make us fully alive human beings as well. Now, some of the language for how Jesus could be divine and human, it's kind of a work in progress in the early part of the church history where we're trying to figure out how to say that kind of stuff. I mean, how do you talk about Jesus being divine and human? It's not an easy thing to do. And it finally gets worked out more or less at a council in the year 451, the Council of Chalcedon, where we have something called the, the Chalcedonian definition, which talks about how Jesus could be one person in two natures, that is a human nature and a divine nature, and that's referred to as the hypostatic union. Just FYI, you know, if you want to be able to tweet some cool things later, so, you know, we learned about the hypostatic union this morning, you know, or something like that. <clears throat> Friends say, what? Sounds mystical. What? what <clears throat> and it sort of is. Uh, the hypostatic union, the word... Uh, Hypostasis is like a Greek word for person, and basically it was a way of talking about how Jesus' human and divine nature could come together into one person, not two persons, not like a half-divided person, uh, you know, one half God, one half humanity. Uh, They're doing their best to explain this. Because it's hard to articulate such a thing, you can understand why many up to that point, up to the year 451, in trying to explain this would sometimes make some missteps and start to emphasize his humanity and minimize his divinity. That's one thing that a group of Christians in the city of Antioch tended to do. 
or people would emphasize his divinity and uh, minimize his humanity. That's what a group of Christians in Alexandria tended to do. And so Christians were really trying to work this out. So in 451, you get this council, and that's one of the main things they're talking about. It was an ecumenical council. What I mean by that is it had representatives from almost all the churches that existed at that time, and it defined the orthodox position on what we call Christology, that Jesus is one person, both human and divine. Now, one of the problems with making sense of this, and one of the missteps that was often made, is that people tended to assume that we knew what divine meant, and we knew what human meant, so now how can we bring these two things together? That is, we had decided beforehand that we already knew what God was, and we already knew what human was, and they were defined in mutually exclusive terms. And then you had this being that seemed to be something different, and we tried to take these two boxes and say, how can we get Jesus to fit in both? Or a different analogy, how can we get him to wear both hats at the same time? You can understand how that would be difficult. But this is to go about the process in exactly the backwards way. What God intends is that we would look to Jesus to learn both what God means and what human means. That only in seeing Him and listening to Him and worshiping Him would we come to know who God is and what it means to be human. So you see what I mean? You don't start beforehand with thinking we know what it means to be human. In fact, we don't. And we don't know what it means to be divine. And so we must look at Jesus to understand both things. Who God is. This is the Christian rule. To know who God is, we must look at Jesus. To know who we are, we must look to Jesus. We don't know what God intends for humans to be apart from Him. We don't know who God is. It's not but we don't look to Jesus for these things because those mean the same thing. Human and divine don't mean the same thing. But because Jesus is both human and divine... We look to him, and because the word human, or the notion of human, actually has no meaning apart from God, theologically. We don't know ourselves, what we are for, what we're to be, what human human life should be like. Because humans were meant to reflect God's image and likeness in order to be fully human and fully alive. Let me just say that part again. We don't know what human means apart from God. It has no meaning apart from God, because we were meant to reflect God's image and likeness in order to be fully human and fully alive. So any human existence that is not related to God in this way, it's like an inauthentic human existence, a subhuman, an inhuman, and sometimes often inhumane existence. Irenaeus, another early church father, once wrote, the glory of God is a living human being. And the life of the human consists in beholding God. The glory of God is a living human being. Sometimes this gets translated as a human being fully alive. And the life of the human consists in beholding God. All right, so we see God in Jesus. We become fully alive in Jesus. We see ourselves fully alive in Jesus. Jesus, the true human. So if we want to be really alive, if we want to know not just life after death, but life before death, 
life here and now, we must come to Jesus. Jesus assumes our humanity in full so that he can heal us, so that he can make us new and remake us in his image. The incarnation shows us that God really did want to save us. He was willing to humble himself to that degree. The incarnation also shows us that God was able to save us, that he accomplished our salvation in the life, death, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we might look to all kinds of things in this life to give us a sense of being alive, of being full, of being happy. We look to things to save us. Maybe it's our image, how people perceive us, our position, our work, our income, whatever. You might know what that is for you. We look for things to both save us and disciple us. By disciple us, I mean they, we look to them to teach us what an authentic human existence would look like. Tell me, person on television or on the radio or in this book, what does a human, authentic human existence look like? Disciple me. I would ask you to ask ourselves, what are we looking to, to give us that sense of salvation, to disciple us in true humanity? You see, when we say things like, some, like I'm only human or someone is only human, we tend to mean I'm faulty, frail, um, <clears throat> I mess up because that's what all humans do. But this is a notion of humanity that is fallen, not the notion of humanity that we see in Jesus. There is a humanity that is fully human and fully alive. So if we want authentic human existence, we must come to Jesus. So what I want for us this morning, one, is to recognize this Christmas, especially, what the presence of God in Jesus was accomplishing. He was renewing us. He was giving us true, full life here and now. And so let us exalt and praise the name of Jesus, and let us also pray to be conformed more to his image. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we ask that you would uh, open the eyes of our heart, that we might see in Jesus both your face, your glory and beauty and majesty. We might also see our own true life. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our lives in such a way that we would be conformed more and more to his image, to reflect that same goodness, beauty, justice, and love into the world around us. We confess that we are unable to do these things on our own. We thank you for sending Christ both to save and rescue us, to show us that you are present with us now and always, and to remake us in your image. We pray you would do that work here and now and all throughout this season. In Christ's name, amen.